Restoration. The act of restoring, bringing something back to its original state or position after depletion of loss or by repairing or rebuilding. That's the textbook definition of what restoration means. When we talk about restoration, we're talking about renewing. We're talking about taking something that has gone into disrepair or been faded or damaged, broken, corrupted, and bringing it back to its original good and pristine state. We live in a world that is desperate for God's restoration. We live in a world that needs to be brought back to God's original design. For we live in a world that is marked by great evil, anxiety, addictions, broken relationships, corruption, war, disease, death. This is what our world, sadly, is, is characterized by. And as disciples of Jesus, the reality is, we wish it weren't so, but the reality is that we are not exempt from the brokenness of this world, for we ourselves are a broken people. And like the rest of this world, we are truly desperate for the restoration that only our God can bring. And we praise our God in heaven. We praise Him together. Because he is in the business of restoring. That's what God does. He's a God about restoration. And he's restoring the world and his people back to his original design, the original plan. And so God's original plan was to create a holy people who would enjoy him forever. And then in so doing, reflect his glory to the world. That's what God is about. If you're wondering, well, what is God's plan? Why did he create? His purpose is so that he can create a people that would be holy, know him and enjoy him, worship him, and in so doing, display his glorious character to all nations. And so God's good creation, unfortunately, has been corrupted by sin. And yet God's plan is not frustrated Now, there are days where it seems like it. There are days in our lives where it can seem like God's good plan is being stopped or somehow prevented or frustrated. But I can tell you on the authority of God's word that God's plans cannot be stopped. God's plans are not ever frustrated for his plan for the world and his plan for you, your life individually cannot be frustrated. And he is taking the brokenness of this world and he is restoring it back to his original purpose to be a display of his magnificent and eternal perfections. And so today we begin a new preaching series and we'll be meditating for the next few months on two Old Testament books, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The series is called Restoration. The Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, let me give you the series theme so that you know where we're going, because we want to go all there together on one bus, you know, Emmer's Park Zoo. We all want to go there in the same direction, not lose anyone that will fall off. And so let's talk about the series theme, where we're going with this series. 
It's on the screens. Is that God is actively at work restoring his people so that they can faithfully worship him. So he's active today restoring his people so that they, we, can be faithful, white-hot worshipers of him. And this is possible only because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By paying the penalty for our sins and our shame on the cross, we now can be made right and restored with God. We can have a relationship that is restored with God the Father. And he is actively restoring his people by saving us from our sin and by transforming us to reflect his character so that we can then, in this beautiful display, be satisfied, have our souls truly satisfied in Christ. Now, I can already guess what some of you are thinking. I'm sure it's very few, but maybe someone in the room is thinking, now, I've already been restored to God. That's already happened. I'm already a believer. So I've already, I already have this restoration. This series maybe really isn't for me. You know, this, besides, it's Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's going to be boring. Like, why can't we talk about something exciting? Well, if, if you've thought something like that in the last couple of minutes, I, I'm not going to shame you, but I really hope that you'll rethink that. Because in our church, we want to have a very healthy diet. And so we looked at First Peter in the New Testament last spring into the summer. We spent a couple of weeks on some topical issues in, in Hebrews and in parenting and in Ephesians the last couple of weeks. And I was starting a new series in the Old Testament. We've gone through Exodus and Joshua as a church. We've, we've gone through Titus and Romans 8. And we've looked both Old and New Testament. And so we want to have a healthy diet of how the Old Testament points to, is fulfilled in Christ, and then also spend time in the New Testament and and see how it has been fulfilled in Christ. And so we want to have a healthy diet of expository preaching where the main idea of the text is the main idea of the sermon. And both Old and New Testament, it's very important for us to have a healthy diet of God's Word. There is much to learn from Ezra and Nehemiah. But back to the original concern, but I've already been restored. Why do I need a series about restoration? Well, I'll say this. It's true that if you've trusted in Christ and he's your Savior, then yes. In one sense, that is true. You already have been restored to God. You are declared holy and righteous now. We looked at Colossians 3 in August and September. A series called Becoming, how we were already declared holy. That's already happened now. So yes, you've been restored already. And yet, restoration is also an ongoing reality. It's both. It's both. And there's a, there's a divine tension here where it's happened, and yet there has to be continual experience of God's restoration in our lives. We need, we need more of God's sanctifying presence in our lives, and, and there are individual areas of your life that need more of God's healing, that needs more of God's restoration. All of us have areas where we're not really where we want to be, and we know it, and we sense God's Spirit nudging us, 
Son, daughter, give me more of your life. Submit to me more. Trust me more. Let me come in and do an even greater experience of restoration in you. And so, yes, you are restored in God's eyes, and you will have your restoration complete one day when we are in heaven and we're glorified. And yet we live in the here and the now, following Jesus, being more fully restored to God's original plan of being a holy people that reflect His glory to the nations. And every one of us needs more of God's restoring work. We need more of God's healing, more of His sustaining power. We need more of Him as we sung. We are so desperate. We need Jesus. And these two Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah which took place in the 6th and 5th century B.C., are all about restoration. And everything that you see in those books is pointing to, fulfilled in the person of Jesus and his work on the cross, which is why we're calling the series Restoration, the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so originally, these two books were actually one. It wasn't until like the 3rd century where it was divided into two. But if you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, it's the same author. It's the same theme. It's the same story. And so you can't look at one and not the other. So we're going to look at both of them in tandem, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, this is not going to be a long history lesson. But if you've not read Ezra recently, and I'm going to guess many of you haven't read Ezra in your quiet time this week, And so I'm going to get you up to speed on the historical context, what was happening with Ezra, again, in the 6th and 5th centuries B.C. Now, just to review, the descendants of Abraham. So his son, Abraham, had Isaac, who had Jacob, and Jacob's children, 12 sons, became the nation of Israel. Jacob was named, was changed to Israel. So sons of Israel are sons of Jacob. So this became the people of God. They were enslaved in Egypt. And through a man named Moses, God powerfully liberated them from slavery in Egypt. They went to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where God revealed himself and gave them his word. And they became God's covenant people. Through the leadership of Joshua, we looked at this last year. So Joshua led God's people into the promised land. They defeated the enemy. They were victorious in conquering the land. And so as God's people now living in the land that he promised to them, they were to worship him, live lives of worship that reflected his holy character to all the surrounding nations. But sadly, God's people living in the land disobeyed. They pursued idols. They did not love God. They did not obey him. They did not display his character to the nations. They pursued idols instead. They were very rebellious. And after many warnings and many calls to come back to your love and come back to enjoy me, God just got tired. And so in 721 BC, God sent judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. If you forget the context there, after King Solomon died, the the nation was torn in two, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And so God sent the Assyrian Empire, an evil people. The capital was Nineveh. You may remember that from Jonah. 
And the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And anyone that survived was taken into exile. And they were just completely decimated. The southern kingdom of Judah, the capital was Jerusalem, was a little bit more faithful. Not much. And so in 586 B.C., God sent the new superpower, Babylon, that had conquered the Assyrians. And then Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Babylon just totally knocked down the city walls. They took the temple, the temple of God, and just leveled it to the ground. Just brought it down to rubble. And those that survived the onslaught were taken captives and exiled in modern-day Iraq to Babylon. You may have remembered about Daniel and his three friends shouted at Michigan and Abednego. These were four men among many, tens of thousands, that were taken to Babylon as exiles. And so they're living in Babylon. This is a total disaster. They're far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is nothing but rubble anyway. The temple is now gone. And they're living in modern-day Iraq as exiles. Now, there was a new world power, the Persian Empire, modern-day Iran, and that, and that region was rising into power, and they destroyed the Babylonians. And so King Cyrus defeated the Babylonian Empire and made it part of their own. And the Persian Empire was vast. I mean, it was huge. To, from India all the way to Turkey, the Middle East, not even to northern Africa. So the Persian Empire was mammoth. And, and now you have in 539 B.C. plenty of Jews, people of God, that are living scattered throughout now the Persian Empire. And there's now a new ruler over them named King Cyrus. So let's just review what's happened here. You have God's people living as exiles now in the Persian Empire, living around modern-day Iraq and Iran. The Jerusalem is very far away, but it's destroyed. There's no houses. There's no temple. It's been smashed. Everything has been demolished. And there's nothing for them there. And they're living far from God's promised land. A very sad and, and dark era in the history of God's people. And, and there were questions that were being asked, like, had God forgotten about us? Where is God? How could he even allow the temple to be destroyed? And how can we be living among these pagans under the Babylonian and now under the Persian rule? What happened to God's promises to bless them? And what about God's promise that there'd be light to the nations? What, what had happened? In the middle of all of this deserved judgment. So let's just be clear. Deserved righteous judgment. God promised hope. God had not forgotten his people. He did not forget his promises. God was very patiently, very calmly working out his plan. God had already promised to the prophet Isaiah 200 years earlier that this would happen, that they would go into exile. But then he promised that they would be restored back to him and back to the promised land. The prophet Jeremiah, after Isaiah, also prophesied the exile. He said, the Babylonians are coming. 
God saw it coming. God sent them. But then Jeremiah also promised that after 70 years, the exile would end. And God's people would have hope and would be restored back to their land and to their God, to each other, and to worshiping their God. And so I'll read to you briefly Isaiah 32, verses 37 through 39. This is is before Ezra. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. So he says, I will gather my people from all the countries. He says, I drove them out in my anger. And he says, I will bring them back to this place, to Jerusalem. I will bring them back. And I will make them dwell in safety. It's beautiful. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. There we see a summary. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Is a summary statement of God's grand design for creation. To create a holy people that will belong to him, that will enjoy him, and who will display his glory to the nations. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So God always keeps his promises. The promises of God are never revoked. He never forgets. So with God's promises here in mind and some of the historical context, let's now read Ezra 1 so that we can then begin this series. We look at Ezra chapter 1. And God's word says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbasar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. And all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All of these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Amen. Let me give you the primary truth from this text, from Ezra 1, 
and also Ezra too, because those two were a unit. Look at both those chapters here this morning. The main truth here is that God's promises are unfailing. Simple, but that's what we're seeing here. The promises of God are unfailing. It's being cried out clearly and loudly. The promises of God are unfailing. And this truth has to resonate in our minds, but then sink much deeper down into our hearts and our souls, our deepest being, and truly know and believe that the promises of God are unfailing. And just like God had promised when they were in exile, He kept His promise to restore them to the promised land and that the temple would also be restored. And God always keeps His promises. So as we work through and kind of reviewing what we just read and look at it more closely here in Ezra 1 and also 2, there are three particular truths about the unfailing promises of God. And so three themes. Number one, the unfailing promises of God is that it requires a response. So number one, the unfailing promises of God require a response. And you see it in verses 1 through 4. Because what you're seeing here in this opening section is now you have the king of Persia, Cyrus, in order to accomplish what God had promised through Jeremiah years earlier, he now makes a decree. And he says to do what? What did he decree? He said the Jews can return to their homeland. He says wherever they're sojourning, anywhere throughout his empire, they can go back to Jerusalem and they can rebuild the city. They can resettle it, and and then they can rebuild the house of the Lord, which is what? The temple. So they can rebuild the temple. And here's the best part. Cyrus, the king of Persia, would pay for it. This is amazing. He gave them gold and silver. And so here's this pagan king that is saying, all of you Jews who your God is the God of Israel, go home. Rebuild, and I'm going to pay for the rebuilding of the temple. This is amazing. This is the hand of God fulfilling the promises that he had made by the prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah. But let's understand this. Let's just be clear. Don't think that Cyrus had a come to Jesus moment. He didn't. Cyrus did not believe in God, not the one true God. He kept talking here about he's a God of Israel. He's their God. So it's not like God was his God. Why would he even do this? Why would he send people back to Jerusalem and then fund it? Honestly, politics. He's a politician. He's the leader of the biggest empire in the known world. And he was doing it for his own political agenda, his economic policy. You see, the Persians had a different mindset than the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They had a little bit different mindset where the conquered people, like the Jews, they'd let them go back to their homeland and, and have their temples rebuilt and worship however they wanted. So they had religious tolerance, if you want to use today's language. So the Persians had a different mindset of how to rule. They thought, let's, let's improve infrastructure. Let's not demolish and subjugate. 
let's, let's build up infrastructure and let's create jobs and, and let's send everyone home and worship however they want because it improves morale and it increases revenue. It's better for the economy. And so the Persians had a much better political mindset that led to better economy, which then led to more expansion. And so what did Cyrus want? More money. More land. He wanted to acquire more. He wanted a better national security. He thinks if we build up Jerusalem, it's an important part on the cross. Ways for trade. It's a good outpost. I'm going to invest there to further my glory. And so you have a king of Persia who is doing out of his own selfish ambition to further his own empire. And yet the scriptures don't see it that way. The scriptures don't interpret this as political, financial, foreign policy. No, no, no. The scriptures are interpreting this as the hand of God. Because that is correct. That's what's happening here. God is sovereign over King Cyrus. And it says here that God, the Lord, what stirred the heart of Cyrus. And so it was God who was behind the scenes, controlling and making his purposes come to fruition, maintaining his promises by using what to the untrained eye would look like nothing more than political meandering was not. It was the hand of God accomplishing his purposes. God is sovereign over the affairs of man. His promises are unfailing. And some of you today are struggling because your home country is a mess. And you know what I'm talking about. A lot of you are here because your home country is in shambles. And you see the government and you see it corrupted. You feel like you've lost your country in some ways. It's not what it used to be and you're really having a hard time with what you see in your home country. But you have to know this, that God is sovereign. And there's nothing that can happen to your home country that can change that fact. And he's using circumstances in your life to further glorify himself, and he's doing it for your own good. As hard as that is to hear, the promises of God are still unfailing. He is still in control. He is still sovereign over all the affairs of man. Nothing can happen apart from God allowing it. And so he stirs in the heart of Cyrus. But then it says that he's stirred, in verse 5, in the hearts of his own people to go. And so God is stirring. He's the one moving things. He's the one who is in control, accomplishing his purposes. And so he starts in the hearts of his people to go back and journey to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And and you see here, for example, in verse 6, where it says, And all who were about them ate them with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and with costly wares and so on and so forth. So you're seeing that God provided for them. He moved in their hearts. And then he gave them the resources to go and accomplish what he called them to do. He keeps his promises and he provides the means to do it. He will never forsake his people. And then verse 11 ends this chapter by saying, And the exiles 
were brought up from Babylonia, which was now a region in Persia. They were brought up from there to Jerusalem. They were restored back to the land. And this story here is just crying out in beautiful language. It's crying out. We need to hear this. God is faithful. It's crying out. God keeps his promises. It's crying out, trust God. In the uncertainty, in the unknown, in the pain, in what, what's before you, and it's really scary or really hard, you can trust Him. We're seeing here that God's promises require a response. The Israelites had to actually make the journey. Yes, God promised, He provided, but they had to take the actions. They had to take those bold steps of faith and actually put their faith into action and do it. So God's promises requires a response. Do you think it was easy to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem? Maybe you think, oh yeah, great, you're going home. Really? First of all, it was about 900 miles away, so 1,500 kilometers. And there weren't Etihad flights back then, all right? It was a four-month journey. A hard four-month journey. Not only that, but after you journeyed four months, where did you get to? A dump. No hotels. No Yasmol. No paved roads. No running water. No houses. No infrastructure. Nothing. Rubble and destruction. So you're after four months journey you get there to get have to get to work to build yourself a house and begin to plant crops and resettle the land and rebuild the temple you think that was easy and and don't forget this most of them were born in babylon most of them never even been to jerusalem before they didn't even know jerusalem maybe their grandparents did But most of those that went back had never even been there. They were born in exile. So they're going to this weird place that's in terrible condition. So they have to go get to work and rebuild. And and what do they have? The promises of God. That's all they needed. God's promises requires a response. And Ezra 2 shows us 42,360 people that responded to God's promises, took the faith, acted on a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and went back to Jerusalem to rebuild. 42,000 plus. So let's for a second apply this before we go any further. Let's just, let's just stop. What actions do you know that God wants you to take? Is there an action that you know you need to take? Something that you know you need to do? Something you know you need to stop doing? So the action is to stop what you've been doing. Is there something that in your soul you know God is calling you to do and you still haven't acted on it? When you have God's promises that Christ promised, I am with you to the end of the age, I'll not forsake you, will not abandon you. And so we have his promises, and yet, are you maybe not acting in faith? 
Are you afraid? Are you afraid of failure? Afraid of what others might think? Afraid of it being really hard? Afraid that you won't have enough money? What are you afraid of? Fear can cripple us. Fear can be so paralyzing and crippling that it prevents us from taking those bold steps of faith that we know God is calling us to take. So if you find yourself not taking action, not responding to God's promises, then at the root, you can know it's a lack of trust. You don't really believe that God is going to be there. You think you're going to go and you're going to be on your own and you're going to be left to yourself. And so at its root, it's a lack of trust when we don't take those steps. The unfailing promises of God requires a response. In the middle of uncertainty, you can be steady and secure because you know God really is in control. He's working it for your good and for his glory. Maybe you think, yes, but, yes, but what? Yes, but I'm going to lose my job. Yes, but my marriage is falling apart. Or, or yes, but I have this addiction. Or yes, but, and we can think of so many things that would prevent us from acting on faith. But God's promises still stand. He is with you, will not forsake you. He has a plan to restore you to the original plan that he has. To glorify him that much more. So do we need to take any actions this week? Number two, the unfailing promises of God produces holiness. Now, if you're wondering, no, the next two aren't nearly as long as the first point. There's a lot of context here. But God's promises produce holiness. The Jews here that were resettling the land on the verge of rebuilding the temple where they can have sacrifices and worship God, they had to reestablish the priesthood. And so that there had to be the priests that would intercede, offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, the priests had to be descendants of the brother of Moses. So the first high priest, the Aaronic priesthood, and so Aaron, so all of Aaron's descendants were the priests. Remember, but they were scattered across Persia. Now they're beginning to resettle Jerusalem. And so they're reestablishing the priesthood for the about-to-be-built temple. Now there's a group of people, it says in chapter 2, the sons of Hakaz, who came forward and said, Hey, we're priests. And the leader said, Really? Show me your documents. And they said, Well, we don't have the right stamped documents. Ever been there before? where you show up to an office and, and you didn't have the documents and you're so frustrated and they're like, go home. And you're like, no, just stamp it. We've all been there. And so these people, sons of Hakaz, they show up and they didn't have the documents. They can't prove their lineage that they are actually sons of Aaron. And so they're told what? Sorry. If you can't prove that you are truly a descendant of Aaron, you cannot serve as a priest. And you see it in chapter 2. Again, chapter 2 describes who went. But towards the end, I'm I'm not going to read it on your own time. You certainly can. Verses 61 through 63 says, 
also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, sons of Hakaz, that's the one's in question, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from daughters of Barzillai at Gileadite, was called by their name. Verse 62. These saw their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. So these people are not in the genealogy. They, they can't prove that they're actually priests. So they're being excluded as unclean. Like, no, you can't serve as a priest. Why? This is showing an intense concern for holiness. Which is the second truth here, is that God's promises produces holiness. It produces holiness. Why? What you're seeing here is they did not want to have a priest unless he was set apart as holy to serve God. So a holy priesthood was a foundation for Israel. They had to have a holy priesthood because they would intercede on behalf of people before God. And if, and if someone would, would go to the altar who wasn't a priest, you know what happened to them? They would die. God's holiness would break out and would kill that person for approaching him and not being a priest before him. And so this Urim and Thummim was a way that they could know God's will. And so in this era, God would, would use two little stones that was kept in the priest's breastplate. And so these two little stones, uh, a Urim and Thummim, one meant yes, one meant no. And so by casting lots, so to speak, they would know, yes, these are priests, or no, they are not. And so God was revealing his will in this way for these people. And so they were really focused on wanting holiness. And they were experiencing God's restoration that comes as promises. So we're seeing here that it leads to emphasis of holiness. And so what you're seeing here in Ezra and Nehemiah reveals something that is far more profound than restoring a broken temple or a broken wall. God is out to restore his broken people. And he's restoring us back to our original design, a holy people that will enjoy him and reflect his glory. So let's apply this before we go on to the last point. How are you doing? And I mean that with utmost sincerity. I can see you in, in, on a Friday morning and everyone looks great. Guys all shaved, well, most of you shaved. Ladies are wearing your dresses and hair's fixed and the kids are all nice and everything looks so great on a Friday morning. But, but beyond the Friday morning, how are you doing? Really, clinging to God's promises should result in increased holiness. Are you growing in your holiness, in your sanctification? How is your attitude towards life or difficult circumstances? How are your relationships? Are they restored? Do you have significant relationships? If you don't, I can assure you they're available. Come talk to me. I'll help you. A lack of growth in holiness is evidence of a lack of truly trusting in God. 
Because loving and trusting Jesus leads to obeying him. When we're loving and trusting Christ, it results in more obedience, more holiness. And that's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? For us to become like Christ so that we can be with him, so that we can be made holy. We're a holy and a royal priesthood. So we can approach God now because of Christ's work on the cross. We can draw near and experience his presence. And his sanctifying presence leads to holiness. Lastly, as we close, the unfailing promises of God produces generosity. And so God's promises leads us to generous hearts. You see at the end of Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. i read those to you very briefly. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. So the people gave sacrificially to rebuild the temple. It says, according to their ability. Remember, King Cyrus already paid for it. They've already got the gold. They can already rebuild it. And they already had the funds. Hear me. And yet, you're seeing that they still wanted to give. See, God did not need their money. God did not need their money. God was going to accomplish his purposes. But they gave joyfully and they gave willingly out of love and and gratitude to God. They wanted to give. God didn't even need it. But they're like, God, here I want to give to you and to your kingdom. I want to see your temple rebuilt. And so they gave. And the same is true today. God does not need your money. He doesn't need it. And yet, you and I should give sacrificially as an act of worship before our God. Generosity is linked to gratitude. They're linked. Generosity and gratitude go side by side. When we're content, when we are satisfied with Christ, the more that we're going to desire to give sacrificially. Generosity is a result of a heart that has tasted the grace of God. When we've really tasted of his goodness, the result is we're overwhelmed, we're gripped by his grace, and we just have hearts that just want to give to him and to his kingdom. How much should you give? Popular question in church life. Should it be 10%? Does it matter? Is that legalistic? How much should I give? Look, the emphasis in the New Testament with the church is not give 10%. The emphasis is generosity. The emphasis is cheerful giver. The emphasis is giving generously and giving sacrificially. That is what we see in the New Testament. It's just overflow of love for Christ. That's what it looks like. So when we give, we are showing something. That we love God more than our possessions. That we love God more than our security. And that we trust God to provide for our needs. And so are you a generous giver? When we recognize the promises of God and how good he's been to us, it just leads to generosity. Where is your money going? 
Are you honestly giving from the heart? You know, it's possible to give without loving because you can get to the Red Crescent, right? You can. Now, do you love the Red Crescent? No. But you can still give without loving, right? But here's the question. Can you love without giving? Nope. It is impossible to truly love and not give. If you love someone, you're going to give of yourself, of your resources. It's what happens. It's the way God designed us. So it's impossible to love without giving. God's plan is restoration. Ezra and then Nehemiah point to the restoration that we have in Christ. I pray that we will experience it in the fullest measure in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so humble that you would hear us this morning, that we could sing your praises, that we could read your word, and we could allow it to go and sink in deep into us and penetrate our hearts and souls. We are so desperate for your restoration. I pray that you would help us experience it in the fullest measure in every area of our life and reflect your glory as you heal, sustain, and restore us. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you. And we pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.